You are listening to John Diard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John Diard. Welcome to the Life Spa podcast, where we prove the ancient medical wisdom of Ayurveda with modern science. And today we have a really special guest, author of an amazing book, new book called The Anatomy of Anxiety. I, I just love it, uh, by Dr. Ellen Vora. We'll get to her in just a minute. If you're watching this podcast on our YouTube channel, please subscribe to our channel. If you're watching it on our website at lifespa.com, please sign up for our newsletter. And of course, we'll get all of our videos and information for free on that site. You get that in your inbox every week. And of course, on your way out, stop, out, stop by our Ayurvedic store where you can check out all of our organic Ayurvedic products. Okay, so let's get started. Um, <clears throat> super excited to introduce Dr. Ellen Bora. She's a holistic psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher, as well as some Ayurvedic training, which is really cool. And she got her uh, bachelor's from Yale and her medical degree from Columbia, super qualified, author of an amazing book called The Anatomy of Anxiety. Ellen, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Um, <clears throat> I thought the book was amazing. I thought you had a lot of really cool insights into anxiety, um, sort of the epidemic of our time, really. And um, I want to start maybe by asking you about the way that you talk about false anxiety versus true anxiety. I was really fascinated by both of those, both false and true. And I want to, you to share a little bit about that um, and how you came to that. I used to, I would always call, um, so what you call false anxiety, I used to call it physiological anxiety. It was based on an imbalance. It wasn't that you're crazy. It wasn't that you have a major mental health concern. We don't have to label you in a certain way. Um, and I think that's sort of what you're talking about is false anxiety. And I think your definition of true anxiety is nothing short of brilliant. And I'm gonna let you take care of that one all by yourself. Hmm. Well, John, thank you for the kind words. And I'm so glad that my book is resonant. And I mean, I think we're exactly aligned on this with the way this is the central thesis of my book is that we're thinking about anxiety incorrectly. In my training, it taught me to subdivide anxiety into all of these different subcategories, diagnoses like generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder with or without agoraphobia and OCD and so on and so forth. And with any system of classification or nomenclature, the idea is that it's going to steer management. And to some extent, we need to standardize our diagnoses for clinical trials. But really the idea was if you have this, then it implies this treatment. Or if you have this diagnosis, it would imply a different treatment. And I'm using holistic strategies when I'm supporting my patients. So that wasn't steering my treatment in a meaningful way. And what I started to observe over years of practice was that a much more useful classification system was to divide anxiety into two types, two broad categories. And the first is what I've called false anxiety, or um, and that term can be triggering and we can talk about why, but it can also be thought of as avoidable anxiety, or exactly as you put it, physiologic anxiety. It's the anxiety that's based in the physical body. It's some moment when something has tripped our physiology into a stress response, and we subjectively experience that as anxiety or even panic. And then true anxiety, on the other hand, is purposeful anxiety. It's not something out of balance in our physiology. It's not something that we can gluten-free or decaf coffee our way out of. Uh, it's our inner compass nudging us, asking us to slow down and get still and listen and pay attention. It's usually telling us something is out of alignment in our lives, in the world around us. There's usually some call to action baked into it. And it's saying, translate this feeling of anxiety into purposeful action. And in many ways, true anxiety is not what's wrong with us. And I would argue it's actually what's right with us when we are lucky enough to be viscerally connected to what's not right in the world around us. Yeah, I so loved how you described it in your book, 
you know, I used to always say, I still say that, you know, the greatest asset that we can have as a human being is being is being sensitive. But being sensitive in a very insensitive world is a little bit tricky. And how you wrote how, you know, <clears throat> some of the some of the the monkeys who were highly sensitive were the radar for keeping the tribe out of harm's way, and how that sensitivity is critical for a tribe to survive. And that some people just have a lot of radar and they feel everything. And they have to learn how to uh, have all that radar and not have it overwhelm them. And in a world which is full of incoming, right, where we're constantly being bombarded by external stimulus, in fact, that we become so addicted to our happiness and satisfaction only comes from external stimulus. So like we needed that with a hole in the head if you're a highly sensitive being, right? So it was just sort of a, a crazy thing. I just thought it was so neat how you was totally empowered through anxiety. They're supposed to be sensitive. We're supposed to have high radar. In fact, in Ayurveda, the whole point of Ayurveda is to refine your sensory perception. You know, people who are like me, more, more in Ayurveda terms, more kapha, you know, and pitta. Like I try to refine my sensitivity, my perception of the subtle and be aware of the more subtle things. In Ayurveda, the more subtle it is, the more powerful it is that we can become aware of those subtle factors and the people who are the true anxious folks have that gift, right? And so to look at that and call it a, a problem is just nothing short of, you know, a violation of the beautiful gift that they were given. So I really think that was just a cool way. And people really need to read that and go, yeah, I'm sensitive. You know, I am, I have true anxiety. You know, we should change that word to true something more awesome because obviously anxiety is just a kind of got a weird connotation, but, but uh, really well put. Well, and to your point, you know, I, I love when we line it up with the doshas and I think about how we, we need all different types of people. We all have a different role and I don't think there's a better or worse. I think it's perfectly valid to be less sensitive. Um, as I put in the book, like we need those folks. I want that person to be my surgeon or to be my pilot, to be the bus driver. We want some people that are a little bit less um, antenna wide open, a little more unflappable. It's just that in our world, we tend to value that, celebrate that, remunerate that. And so the sensitive folks who are equally valid are the underdogs in our current modern world. We're telling this person over here who's less sensitive, who's maybe more squarely pitta, we're saying you're a life natural. And this very vata person over here whose antenna is wide open and they can't make it through the news without crying, we tell that person, don't be so sensitive. And I think what we need to do instead is say, tell me what you know, because they're tuned into something that the rest of us will come to much more slowly. I use the analogy of uh, the vata pitta and kapha types as you know hunter-gatherers or cave people in the... Uh, in the cave and the, the Vata types who are super artistic and sensitive, they're drawing the beautiful drawings on the walls and have making it all beautiful. The Pitta types are in there, you know, banging out and putting a deck on their cave to overlook everything, opening up new windows and doors and making it bigger and trying to make it better. And the Kapha types are sitting around the fire saying, will you guys please stop with all the racket, come down, sit by the fire, let's chat, sing songs and let's bond, right? <laughs> so we need all those, just like you said. And uh, we all have all of that inside of us. I think all of us, we all say, yeah, I have a little of that and I have a little of that. But uh, the, pr the proportion we have can set us up for that crazy thing called anxiety when you're nothing more than highly sensitive and highly aware, uh, which is such a cool, cool thing. Um, you, you go on to say in your book, um, some, of the, some of the major factors for having that sort of physiological anxiety, one of that is called, you know, uh, tired and wired. When I read your book, I was like, so cool. I, I call it wired and tired. You call it tired and wired. I, and, and there's a lot of research now that shows that when you can't sleep at night, um, the reason for lack of sleep is not because you have too much energy. It's because you actually have too little. We actually need energy to go to sleep. There's surge of energy or ATP or, you know, remember biology class, adenosine triphosphate. That gets surges before you go to sleep at night. And it gets broken down into three phosphates and one adenosine. And adenosine is the sedative that puts you to sleep. For those who are listening, 
caffeine doesn't give you stimulation so much as it actually blocks the adenosine receptor. So you can't get tired. You can't be sedated with caffeine because you've blocked the receptors that actually calm you down. Those receptors are the ones that put you to sleep, but you need energy to make that happen. And that's the problem is we're so burned out as a culture that we don't have the energy to calm ourselves down. So we stay, as you say, tired and wired, and we can't get that body to settle down. So let's dive into that a little bit. You know, what, what do you see as the, you know, what people can do for their sleep and how does that actually relate, you know, um, from your perspective to the anxiety? Yeah. So I like sleep as a first line treatment for anxiety, and this is all under the category of false or avoidable anxiety, recognizing all these little subtle aspects of modern life that are pinballing our physiology around keeping us out of physical balance and creating unnecessary anxiety. It's not our inner compass. It's not our true north. It's not our role on this planet as the sensitive, intuitive artist type. This is just unnecessary suffering. It doesn't have to be happening. Right. doesn't really serve anybody. And sleep is primary among this. And it used to be a while back that we weren't sleeping because of a prioritization issue. I think we used to think about sleep as like, oh, I'm Superman. I don't need as much sleep as someone else. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Sleep is for the weak. It's for the lazy. And we actually yeah. have experienced a cultural shift where we've started to value sleep and prioritize sleep. And yet it still eludes us because we think we're doing everything right. And then we try to lie down and fall asleep and we can't fall asleep. And that's almost more infuriating. And I think that with the caveats of a few situations that are trickier to treat, such as shift labor, jet lag, perimenopause, and postmenopausal sleep, with those caveats aside, I think most modern insomnia is eminently treatable, and it just requires being a little bit strategic. And while anxiety impacts our sleep, it's more important to focus on the fact that sleep impacts our anxiety. And that's the entry point that we can more easily change. And so I love to fix my patient's sleep. There's a few strategies that are especially important. I focus first on light, light strategy, because our circadian rhythm, our sleep-wake cycle is cued by light. And to nerd out on the science for a moment, this has to do with a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nuclei, and they are connected to our eyes and they are constantly scanning the landscape, looking for light cues. They're using the light in the landscape to tell our brain what time of day it is. And this was a pretty foolproof design on the proverbial savanna of evolution, where light meant it was by definition daytime and nighttime was by definition dark. And that has been flipped on its head in modern life. So we're giving our brain all of these confusing light cues. And then it's any wonder we're lying in bed. It could be 11 PM. We're scrolling on social media and it's sending a cue to our brain that says, good morning, the sun is rising. And we suppress our melatonin, we release cortisol, our stress hormone, and we toss and turn and struggle to get tired and fall asleep. So it just comes down to light. And there are a few ways to solve this. You can start the day first thing in the morning, getting outside. Any actual sunshine into our actual eyeballs is the most effective way to start the clock on your circadian rhythm. And then in the evening, after sunset, maybe the best thing to do would be to move off the grid, homestead, raise chickens, throw your phone in the ocean. Short of that, you can just get any pair of blue blocking glasses, put them on at sunset, wear them until bedtime. And this will at the very least protect your brain's ability to secrete melatonin. So you still get sleepy at night. And I think just one last thought on the tired, but wired idea. I think that a lot of us are struggling with sleep because we let ourselves get what's called overtired. We are tired, we're perfectly tired. And most humans have a sweet spot when they would fall asleep most easily around three hours after sunset. But we push past that because that feels too early for bedtime. And then our body in an effort to help thinks, well, we must have some good reason for staying up past the point when we're perfectly tired. So maybe we're on the night shift tonight. Maybe tonight is the great migration. And once again, it suppresses our melatonin, it secretes cortisol, and then suddenly we're overtired. We're tossing and turning, tired but wired. We have that second wind. And um, I think a lot of us are chronically getting that second wind every night and then finding it difficult to fall asleep. So the solution is to go to bed a little earlier, somewhere around three hours after sunset. Yeah, no, beautiful. And so 
aligned with the Ayurvedic principles, I was uh, <clears throat> contacted by some researchers doing research on something called Agni Hocha, which is that fire ceremony that, that they do in India at the sunrise and the sunset. And they asked me, they had this, some, some research on it, had how doing that every day would affect alcoholism and abuse and addiction, mm -hmm. things like that. And they asked me if I could dig into the research. And I was like, okay, you know? And um, so what I found was really interesting was that, you know, obviously we know that when the sun rises, um, the, 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 the sunlight actually blocks the melatonin production. So you wake up. And we also know that blue light from LED lights and things, they also block the melatonin. And so the blue light does come in the morning. There's a blue hour before sunrise. It's very, very blue, and that blocks the melatonin. But early hominids weren't, didn't have color vision. So it wasn't blue light or the red and orange sunrise that did it. Turned out that the study showed it was actually the contrast between, between the blue and the red and the orange and the yellow light. So without color vision, it would be the contrast that you would see, right? So when you're actually staring at a flame, right at the moment of sunrise or, or the sun actually looking at the sun when it rises, which is not always possible for folks, you're actually you know, enhancing that contrast between the yellow flame and the, the blue sky, which is scattered all over the sky. And that is like synchronizing your watch to say, this is the exact moment that my night biological clocks turn off and my day biological clocks turn on. And it was just sort of fascinating, right? And just like you said, you know, getting up and being there when the sun rises and actually witnessing and being there is like what every traditional person did for millions of years, except for us, right? We get it in the cars, we're driving to work, maybe, you know, so things like that. So it's just a beautiful, important piece of the puzzle. And I think that's so neat when you talk about sleep, we know the science says that the more sunlight you get in the morning, the more melatonin you produce at night. It's yeah. fact. So, yeah. so that's really great, great advice and more and more information about, you know, getting, getting to sleep. You, you also talk about um, um, the, the impact of technology, you know, on, on us and anxiety. Talk to us about that. What is that? What's the research on what technology does? And we're all in it, you know, yeah. what do we do? It's a big topic. I mean, a lot of the research has it has really interesting findings around the way, especially the young people, adolescent females, most of all, are most negatively impacted. And that seems to have to do with the way young females are particularly susceptible to relational aggression, which the lack of accountability in social media plays a role in that. The whole compare and despair and the FOMO of it being in your face when you're left out. And that speaks right into our DNA where we feel safe when we feel a sense of belonging. And when we feel disconnected or isolated or ostracized uh, on some matter, on some level in our DNA, it feels like it's a life or death issue because we feel like we are being abandoned by the tribe and that we'll be out on our own and uh, left to fend for ourselves. And I think that one thing I like to focus on when we think about why technology is so deleterious to our mental health, I think there's, there's two issues that come to my mind. One is that we just have to get very explicit about the fact that we are living in the attention economy, which is to say our attention is the commodity being competed for by very smart companies. They've done their homework. They know their neuroscience and their behavioral psychology, and they know that if they prey on our fear response or instill uncertainty or doubt or controversy, we will rubberneck, we will hand over an increasingly large share of our attention. They get more clicks and more ad revenue, but our mental health is the collateral damage. So we need to navigate the information landscape, eyes wide open, self-protectively, and really decide for ourselves who gets to tell us what and in what way and how often and at what time of day, recognizing that it impacts our mental health, it impacts our sleep cues, um, it impacts our feeling of safety. And I put up a part in the book that I called the banality of fear. And it really speaks to the fact that not for some deep sinister reason, but just because advertisers are trying to help their companies make a buck, 
they uh, prey on our fear response because we used to say sex sells. Well, fear also really sells. And if we instill uncertainty and doubt and we tell someone, you, you didn't realize this, but you're broken and you have a, a big vulnerability that will be solved by this product that we happen to be selling, um, it, it makes us, you know, it, it's an effective consumer strategy. It convinces people to buy things that we don't need and that helps companies make money. But it also leaves us feeling inundated with fear messaging. We're surrounded and bathed in these waters of you're not whole unto yourself. You have a fundamental lack and it's disempowering, but it just makes us feel surrounded by danger. And it's actually for a completely banal reason, which is just advertisers trying to use our fear response to sell us something we don't need. So what's the mechanism of that, of all that incoming, all that fear messaging and anxiety? The mechanism of how it creates anxiety? Yeah. I mean, I think that our brain, it's this incredible computer, it's sophisticated machinery, and it's constantly scanning the landscape for potential threat. This is largely our limbic system and especially our amygdala in the brain. And it's a part of the brain that's, um, it's, it's responding very quickly, usually even before conscious thought gets involved. And it's just thinking, is that a snake? Is that a leopard? Is that, um, you know, did that advertisement for a new kind of baby monitor just warn me that ah, I haven't been a responsible parent and my child has been in this danger because I didn't buy that new kind of newfangled baby monitor. And so we're just, we're scanning the landscape for threats to our survival. And it's not bad machinery. It, this keeps us alive. It's a beautiful part of how we are built, um, but it can be exploited. So short of throwing it in the ocean, <laughs> what, do we, what do we do? Yeah, don't throw the amygdala in the ocean alongside our phones. I think, um, <laughs> you know, I think part of what we do is we do, we need, we need a few practices to support healthy amygdala function. Um, I think one is to complete the stress response. This is something that draws on researchers that look at an animal of prey. If they have an encounter <clears throat> with a predator, it's a life or death encounter, and perhaps they have the freeze response. They drop, they become involuntarily paralyzed. They're still, it's partly to feign death so that that predator pokes around and thinks, oh, this rabbit is dead and I don't want to eat a sick animal. So I'm going to move on to the next cluster of animals and see if that might be my dinner. And when the rabbit comes to and its body perceives that the threat has passed, it shakes. It has this mechanism. It's intuitive. It, it shakes. And that's how it seems to discharge its excess adrenaline. That seems to be how the nervous system communicates to itself that the threat has passed and it's now safe to be in the body again. And we as socialized human creatures, we have no shortage of stressors coming at us all the time, but we don't typically have a good shake after every stressful email or meeting with our boss. And I think we need practices like that on a daily basis, something that discharges excess adrenaline, but also communicates to our nervous system, you're safe. And that can be any number of things. It can be movement like exercise or dancing or shaking itself, which is what I do. Uh, it can be creative expression, chanting, humming, making art, singing. And then I think connection in all forms is really helpful. Cuddling, um, play, having a good cry, telling somebody, here's my raw, authentic, vulnerable truth, and having somebody reflect back to you, I really see you and I still accept you. All of these are deeply therapeutic to our nervous system. That's all I think maintenance for just all of us going through our stressful lives. I think sometimes when someone is working with a history of trauma, it requires work on a slightly different level to maintain healthy amygdala function. And that's when we're starting to look at things that can reprogram the limbic system. A limbic system that's been through trauma is often stuck in a state of hyperarousal. It's almost like the foot is stuck on the gas pedal and then we're perceiving threat even when there is none. And so that's when you'd want to use something like EMDR or somatic experiencing therapy or DNRS. These are a lot of different acronyms, but there's a lot of really good programs that exist that help reprogram and repro re it's really reprogramming the limbic system to rest at a slightly different baseline. Mm. Wow, that's fantastic. So shaking, um, 
um, you know the Shakers in New England, right? There's a whole religious group called the Shakers. You've heard of, remember yeah. them? Indeed. And uh, I, and it was quite a, a great technique, but one of the rules of the religion was that you weren't allowed to have sex. So, <clears throat> you know, it didn't last because there were no people left <laughs> in short order. <laughs> But I think the shaking part was a really good idea, obviously, according to what you're saying. So, and there were the, the shakers in, um, I think it's in Tanzania, the, the, the shaking medicine, the Sans Bushman do shaking, and it's a, it's a spiritual technique, right? You've heard mm -hmm. of that? Um, so how do you shake? How do you get rid of that stress? Do you just shake? The way I shake is the way yeah. I was taught when I studied integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. And I had this amazing professor named Anne-Marie Chiasson. And um, she put on a particular track of shamanic drum music. The track was called Ama Extended Mix by the drummer James Asher, brilliant, incredible heart-centered musician. I use his track of music when I do talks on this and presentations. And I've asked him, you know, um, for permission to use his music. And he's like, please just spread this medicine. <laughs> and so it's yeah. so gracious about it. And um he, that, that music helps sync up the brain with a theta wave pattern. So even just listening to that rhythm of music is inherently relaxing. But then I let my body be floppy, close my eyes. And there's, there's a temptation to start moving in a way that you think is the right way to move. You think you should do something that looks normal or looks cool or looks appropriate or is what you're picturing someone might do in a shaking practice. And you almost need a sacred pause. You wait through that initial instinct and you wait for what emerges, which is basically your body calling the shots and saying, well, here's how I feel like moving in this moment. And it looks different every time, but I think there's something inherently therapeutic about for once letting our bodies tell us how to move rather than constantly imposing top down, here's how you need to get through the day. And so I move however my body feels like moving in that moment. I find it excavates memories, emotions, things that are stuck in the connective tissue in that sense that the body keeps the score. We hold so much in our fascia and that gets unearthed and dislodged. And then the shaking movement seems to always result in a state of relaxation afterward. Wow. That is very cool. That is so easy for people to do, right? Obviously not on the public bus because they might, you know, but there's a place for that. And it's super cool to be able to do that. And it's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting science behind that as well. And it's a spiritual technique as well. It kind of raises your vibration, right? Absolutely. And, that's kind of, and when you raise your vibration, you're, you start thinking above the fray. You're not hitting every emotional rock as you cruise through the river, right? It's so it just makes life a lot easier. Are there any other like super quick little resets that you know of that we can, you can share for people to kind of de-stress and get that anxiety? To bed. Let me throw two out there. One okay. is the four, seven, eight breath, which there are so many different pranayama exercises, Kundalini breathing exercises. There's so many ways to breathe that are, can be used as a technology to tip our nervous system from a state of a sympathetic nervous system tone to a parasympathetic tone. It's really anything that extends the exhale relative to the inhale without straining. I find the way I make sense of that is that it's like you're breathing as if you were a genuinely relaxed person. And all of this communication between the brain and the diaphragm, it's two-way communication. So if you were truly relaxed, you would breathe in this way, long, deep diaphragmatic breaths with an extended exhale. Um, but if you're not relaxed, but you breathe as if you were a relaxed person, it sends the memo up to the brain. And the brain is like, you know, by Jove, I never thought I'd say this, but apparently the organism is relaxed. <laughs> and so then a neurohormonal cascade ensues. The one I like is the four, seven, eight breath. I like them all. I like box breathing, but inhaling to the count of four, holding to the count of seven, exhaling to the count of eight. It's a great technique, um, easy to remember, easy to practice. And the, the key is really just to have a loose grip. Because if you're just starting out and you're prone to anxiety, you can start to strain and overthink it and kind of over white knuckle the process. And then that's counter therapeutic. So you just go easy with it. And the last one I'll mention is crying. And I think that we are due for a cultural rebrand around crying. We, we cry and we instantly apologize. We say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We try to suck it back in and make it as small as possible. 
and we feel like a burden. We feel embarrassed. We feel ashamed. Um, and we think I'm a hero if I can just make this cry as short and as small as possible. And I think we've got it completely wrong. It's the wisdom of our body giving us a much needed opportunity for a release and it's free therapy. So I encourage people to really rethink crying and when they get an opportunity to cry, to dive in, let it be big, let it be complete. Don't apologize, normalize it. I wish that didn't rhyme and really just go with it and let that be a complete experience. It's the most cathartic thing that we can do and it bonds us to the people we're around. It's not a burden and it's not something to be ashamed of. It activates oxytocin and mirror neurons and others around us and elicits empathy. There's really something so pro-social about crying. So I think we need to embrace it. Mm, I love that. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because when you read the Ayurvedic text, there's always like all the conditions and diseases and whatever. And there's always like a list of things you should do. And on the, the first thing that comes up in almost every condition, which when I first read those texts years ago, I would just thought, okay, okay. It was don't suppress natural urges. Yeah. Don't suppress natural urges. I'm going like, okay, sure, whatever that is. And that would go into the rear, give me the herb for the whatever it is, you know? And then I actually wrote an article about the 14 natural urges that we actually suppress. And it's sort of phenomenal because these are the things that are on the top of the list for every disease in Ayurveda, you know, which is a thousands year old medicine, medicinal system. One of them is crying, you know, and then you think, okay, well, and there's, there's pooping we, and then there's peeing and there's sneezing and there's coughing and there's burping. I mean, we've suppressed all of them without, yeah. without even thinking about it. Cause we we're you know, and I think it's such an important thing, you know, to, to, to make note of that and crying absolutely being one of those. And then, and doing the breath and lengthening the breath, particularly the exhale, as you know, what it does for folks, so you know, is it actually allows your carbon dioxide levels to rise and carbon dioxide levels calms you down. That's why when you get an anxiety attack, you put a paper bag over your mouth, you rebreathe carbon dioxide and you get more CO2. And most of us, because we get, because we're anxious, we shallow breathe, right? So we breathe really shallow. And one study showed that we over breathe oxygen when we do that. And one study showed that 75% of the oxygen we breathe in, we breathe right back out unused. And when we do that, breathing really rapidly and shallow, we blow off all the CO2. So oxygen gets high, CO2 goes low, and we get anxious. And when you start to slow and lengthen the breath, the carbon dioxide levels begin to rise. And um, so it's a beautiful mechanism for uh, allowing us to calm down. It's just letting our bodies slow down and bringing the, the carbon dioxide levels and the oxygen levels back into balance, which is really a cool thing. Those are awesome tips. Thank you so much. Okay, now the things we do when we are anxious, we go, ah, ah, I need a cup of coffee, right? So we go to the caffeine or the, or the Red Bull or the whatever. Tell us about that. Does it help us? Does it hurt us? Is it, is it good, bad, and ugly? What's, what's the story with caffeine? I don't make many friends with this part of the conversation. All the <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there are these aspects of modern life that are normal, they're common, um, but a lot of us are stuck in a vicious cycle in our relationship to these substances. And I would say caffeine, alcohol, and sugar are worth highlighting. And with caffeine, it's not, you know, I, I'm, I try to be moderate with this and recognize it's not necessarily an inherently bad substance for all people. And there's certainly a dosha perspective on this. Um, but I think that when the studies look at it without regard for Ayurvedic doshas, there, there's some recognition that caffeine, coffee contains magnesium and antioxidants and is associated with decreased levels of type two diabetes and Parkinson's disease. So not inherently bad, but there's bio-individuality and one person might be kapha, one person might be a rapid metabolizer and they might benefit to some degree, whereas someone else might be more vata. They might be uh, a slow metabolizer of caffeine and they're more sensitive to caffeine and it's quite destabilizing. So I just invite everyone to at least recognize, don't just default into well, everyone's drinking coffee and I'm addicted to coffee. And so I need coffee in the morning. Um, it's my one true salvation in the world, even though it's really just solving its own withdrawal. Um, so we all think that we need it, but it's worth reflecting. How does this really work with my body? And for me, after a many year on again, off again, love affair with coffee, I had to acknowledge I'm quite sensitive to it. And once I gradually tapered off and eliminated it, 
it was actually really helpful. And so I encourage my patients to just get wise to it. Maybe they're pushing it a little bit earlier in the day because it has a long half-life in terms of how the liver is metabolizing it. So it's going to be less disruptive to our sleep, that adenosine effect that you mentioned. So pushing it earlier in the day gives our liver more time to metabolize it. And then there's less caffeine buzzing around our brain when we're trying to fall asleep. And then just to reconsider the amount of milligrams of caffeine we consume. And sometimes what we're really benefiting from is the ritual. We love the smell and the taste and the warmth and the flirtation with the barista, with the tattoos. And you can keep all of that, but it can go from a full calf to a half calf, or you can get green tea instead. There are ways to still keep the ritual, but lose this anxiety generating amount of caffeine. And that said, important PSA is you go gradually. It's a real drug. There's a real withdrawal. We get headachey and fatigued and irritable when we go too quickly. So you just gradually taper in the background in a way that's sustainable for the body. Alcohol is a slightly different conversation. I don't really start with the caveat that alcohol is not an inherently bad substance. I think it is an inherently bad substance. We have been marketed to that five ounces of red wine is a heart healthy choice or that you know your drink of choice is a reflection of you and it's a feminist empowering choice or it's you're a boss babe with your cocktail. And the, the data is in the healthiest amount of alcohol to consume is zero. And I'd be the first to admit, we're not trying to live our lives at all times making the choice of optimal wellness. That wouldn't necessarily be a fulfilling life, but we at least need to, we deserve to be informed about the fact that this is poison to our bodies. It's not a healthy choice. And I just encourage people to make conscious self-loving choices around alcohol, not peer pressure, not um, default setting. And the, the kicker for me, the kind of science pearl that helps me make different choices around alcohol is the impact it has on our sleep. And we know that it disrupts our sleep architecture. It, it interrupts our ability to fall into deeper stages of sleep. But I've always wondered about the mechanism. So when I was writing the book, I did some research into this. I always kind of had a sense that, of course, it's causing a blood sugar crash, and perhaps that's creating a stress response and shunting us out of deeper stages of sleep. But the part that really took my breath away was learning that why we like alcohol has to do with the fact that it rushes our brain with the neurotransmitter GABA, gamma immunobutyric acid, and that's a calming inhibitory neurotransmitter. And if the story ended there, I would say alcohol is a really good treatment for anxiety because it makes us calm. But our brain, our body, they're not so concerned with whether or not we're calm. They're always concerned with our survival. So in an attempt to restore homeostasis, uh, they furiously convert that GABA into a different neurotransmitter called glutamate, which is excitatory. And I believe this is what accounts for why we wake up at two or three in the morning, thoughts racing, heart racing, and toss and turn the rest of the night if we've had a couple glasses of wine at dinner. And so now when I'm about and someone's offering me a drink, I think to myself, like, I really just want to sleep well tonight. I don't want that experience of tossing and turning, feeling unable to fall back asleep. And that for me is what motivates me to say, I'll pass. What about having a little bit of an alcoholic in the morning when you start the day? Uh, <laughs> just yeah. kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I love I, I love that, and I think you know when and you know people are going to push back and go, well, there's all these studies saying alcohol is good for you, you know, for heart disease and things like that. What do we say about that? Right. So there's research funded by the wine and spirit industry that tells us that, but I am convinced by what is to date the largest, longest, um, broadest meta-analysis that was using multiple locations around the globe. Um, to the order of, I don't know exact number, I think it's thousands of patients over decades that really shows us alcohol is associated with all cause mortality. Yeah. And so the healthiest amount to consume is zero when yeah. the wine and spirits industry is not funding the research. Right. And it's a carcinogen, right? I mean, that's what it is yeah. too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, Ayurveda always says too, you know, if you, you should be in, in control of your senses and if your senses are you know, if something is controlling you, or you wake up thinking about a cup of coffee, like, you know, it's got you, you know, if you go home at night and you're thinking about that glass of wine when you, before you even get to the front door, 
these are things that are, you know, low hanging fruit opportunities, opportunities for us to transform patterns of behavior that aren't serving us and free ourselves from being, you know, addicted to or attached to something that really isn't good for us in the long run, which is like really great because most people are into the whole coffee, you know, and three, four cups. I mean, the research of the amount of coffee you have to drink to get the benefit is just like, really, I got to bring 15 cups of coffee to reverse, to not get prostate cancer. I would be dead for many other reasons if I drank six, 15 cups of coffee. You know what I mean? Like who drinks, where do they get these people to study the, the, the dosages of the coffee that people drink in these studies? I just think it's sort of funny or phenomenal. Maybe they're, 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 they're converting it from the mice dose to the human dose or something, but it's crazy. I've always wondered if that research is actually inherently confounded because the same person who would feel drawn to drinking that much coffee in a day, they might just be fundamentally different on a biologic level in a way that also happens to decrease rates of type two diabetes and Parkinson's. So it, it may be that it's not the caffeine effect. It's something yeah. biochemically about that person. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. That sort of being controlled by our senses. And it's interesting just to see on places like Instagram and TikTok the love affair that we have with our coffee, the passion around it, the sort of um, all, it's a muse for people. There's beautiful artistic reels made of people pouring coffee into a mug. And, um, you know, I, I respect the craft, but at the end of the day, it just tells you, you can't come between people and their addiction. And whether it's my latte, my wine, my clonopin, um, yeah. these substances that, um, you know, it, it sort of, it's telling when somebody really bristles at the idea of you saying like, hey, let's rethink this. Um, it tells you a lot about how, who's driving the ship when their brain has been hijacked by a substance. So I'm gonna push back a little further because this is obviously a really hot topic for a lot of people. What about the idea that this, that a small amount of coffee could be, have a hormetic effect, you know, where a little bit, you know, doesn't kill you, but it makes you stronger. What about that? Yeah, I'm not even sure if it's a hormetic effect as like that there's there's trade-offs and there, there are pros and cons. There's costs and benefits to caffeine and to coffee. And I wonder if for some people's physiology, um, they could find a sweet spot where they're getting primarily benefits from it and not costs. So um, I'm completely open to that. I mean, I think it's a substance with benefits. It just also has costs and it all depends on how we're wired. And right. so- I don't even think it's necessarily beneficial in how it's harming us and that more hermetic effect. I think it's benefiting us with, you know, what would be considered inherently beneficial aspects like the magnesium and the antioxidants and even the way that it is a stimulant. Um, I think some people's wiring actually benefits from that. Yeah, they feel good. And that's a benefit they don't want to lose, you know. Yeah. But, but I, I venture to say that if people would sort of do the whole you know, water process decaf route and start to take the coffee, the caffeine, the caffeine down a, a few notches, you would find that you feel you get the same effect of feeling good without the addiction, without the waking up, thinking about it, without the needing it, you know, and that's the mm -hmm. part that people, I think it's a wake up call when you start needing it so bad. How about food? Um, you know, are there foods that we should eat and foods that we should avoid to deal and cope with our anxiety? Food. Oh, that topic. <laughs> I could have written the book on food alone. <laughs> yeah. And I had to cut down that chapter so that it wasn't like three times the length of the other chapters. No, I mean, I think at, at the outset, we, and I think your listenership, your audience is already hip to this, but in case it's worth stating explicitly, we first have to recognize that food matters to our mental health. And that shouldn't have to be said, but in medical circles, it still does have to be said. And I've gone into so many medical settings and the more rigorous and academic, the more they dismiss food as relevant to mental health, the more that's pushed to the side as soft science. And I think we're mad if we're not thinking that the fuel we're giving our brain has an impact. We're conscious about what kind of gasoline you might give to a luxury car, but we are not taking the same regard for what kind of gasoline we feed the luxury engine of our brain. Um, and so, and then I think there are ancestral considerations. There's certainly preference, there's environmental considerations, there's ethical, there's so many ways to think about how do we nourish ourselves. And I think we're all different. Um, I think a compass that's somewhat one size fits all is 
generally try to err on the side of eating real food, avoiding processed food. And I think we need to name this delicate balance that exists, which is that we need to use our food to nourish ourselves, to think about the fact that in any given day, we have a nutritional scavenger hunt. Our brain requires certain vitamins, minerals, nutrients to function properly. And good mental health is a reflection of a well-functioning brain. But we need to nourish ourselves without creating inflammation, without putting ourselves onto a blood sugar roller coaster. And we need to do it from a place of ease and pleasure and convenience and affordability and not from a place of fearing food or feeling like our bodies are fragile or becoming obsessive about meal prep and letting it become a part-time job. I think that's a delicate balance to strike in the modern American food landscape. I'm forever evolving sort of how I feed myself. I feel like my body is a very good weather vane and it tells me what foods are not so great. And um, it, it speaks very loud and clear. Like, even though someone might say, this is a healthy food, my body will say a very clear no to so many different kinds of foods. So I'm always tweaking and thinking about how do I most effectively nourish myself? And for me right now, that is actually, um, I, in the past have eaten a plant-based diet. I now eat animal products and that's been helpful for me. And that's a big controversial conversation that I'm always up for reconsidering and debating and think that for me, there's a tension that exists between how I would ethically like to eat and how I feel best. And I've really taken a, a vegetarian and a vegan diet to um, a very sort of well-executed point. I actually didn't feel my best in that state. And for me and my constitution, some amount of animal products seems to be helpful. I think you have to really, um, you know, do exactly what you're saying is really be willing to be really true to what your body is telling you that you need. Um, you know, in the Ayurvedic community, uh, there's a lot of spiritual groups and there's a lot of dogma around eating meat that you shouldn't eat meat because you're a spiritual person. Although in the Ayurvedic text in every one of them, there's chapters on meat, what kind of meat, when to eat it, how to eat it as a medicine. So it's like, it's like Ayurveda is not a, in any way, according to their own textbooks, you know, a vegetarian system of medicine. Yet in the spiritual world, well, many of the spiritual practices sort of do come from India-ish. Um, um, you know, they're all very, people feel really guilty for, for eating meat. And, uh, and then, then there's a badge of honor for being a vegan. It was, it was an article that was written just a, just a week or so ago that I read. There were three vegan influencers, right? And they were vegan and they promoted veganism like crazy, like just big time, big time, big time. And, um, and then one of the influencers actually um, was seen eating meat in a restaurant and got videoed eating meat in a restaurant and somewhere in the Caribbean or something when they're on vacation, didn't think they'd be busted. And then, you know, that just, you know, she lost all of her followers, blah, 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 of course, because she was basically, but when, when the truth came out, she said that I just wasn't feeling good. And when I went into veganism, I felt really, really good. But then I just started feeling, you know, worse and worse and worse. And I just felt like I had to start eating meat. Now, there's no excuse for lying to her people. The other two influencers actually did come clean first and say, hey, you know what? I'm not feeling good with this diet. I have to have a little bit of animal protein. And when you look at the centenarians on the planet, right? They eat about 10% of their animal pro of their diet is animal protein. You know, and if you're gonna be vegan, you, you, you there's just things you're gonna be missing in your diet. You gotta figure out a way to get them either with supplementation, which is not what everybody wants to do. And nobody really wants to kill an animal, I don't think. So you're so right, it's a real conflict. You know, and I would love to be a vegetarian, but I too eat about 10%, maybe even less of my diet as animal protein. But I do get a little bit of it because I had as a vegetarian for many years and sort of crashed and burned myself. And so I think it's just a point of like, if you can do it and do it well, golly, there's no better diet that I could think of. But I think you have to be willing to, to be open-minded and not, not follow the dogma of your peers or your community. And, and like those influencers finally had to say, hey, look, you know what? This isn't the best way for me. You know what I mean? And so it's a, it is a, it is a hot topic, but so from the point of anxiety though, are there like in Ayurveda, the, you know, the winter is a, a cold, dry time of the year where anxiety gets worse. The food that nature provides is the antidote to the extremes of that season, like nuts and seeds and grains and legumes and heavy, high fat, high oily foods that will calm the vata down. Mm -hmm. Is that a, a thing um, from your perspective that people could just eat a 
well, we call it a Vata diet or, or a higher fat diet, a heavier diet um, to, basically, to basically help combat their anxiety? Well, yes. And it depends on their dosha and where they are and what time of year. And it's interesting how, I mean, I think that that's even a consideration when you think about Ayurvedic principles. I think it's also always important to think about ancestrally the genetics of the people and the climate where this science was developed. And I think that you know, my husband is South Asian and you know he's descended from the subcontinent. It's it's a really different climate and different genetic profile. And his body tolerates different foods than mine as a mutt totally. from yeah. Northern Europe. And so um, I think that um, that's relevant here as well. And when someone is, you know, sort of very in a state of Vata exacerbation and it's a dry, cold climate and it's that time of year, I think that's like a really good targeted way of supporting. Um, and then of course, it's always a dynamic process. You attempt that you listen for how their body does with it. And in the modern food environment, there's all these interesting um, sort of fun wild cards that get introduced, like when someone has allergies to certain types of foods. So it's not always possible even to fully translate those principles because even I think about dairy and um, the sort of unpasteurized full fat dairy that was existing in India when these principles were being developed and the access to the, that kind of good quality ghee that they had. And these foods that could be very medicinal aren't necessarily in our American food landscape, or it's hard to track down those versions of these foods. So yeah. I think that it gets pretty spicy and interesting quickly, but I love starting from that place. And, and when you eat the wrong food, um, one of the results is inflammation and you made the case that in your book that inflammation could be a cause for anxiety and from the ayurvedic perspective with 85 percent of all disease coming from some type of underlying digestive imbalance you could eat the best food in the world and still have a broken down digestive system and still cause inflammation and, and, and therefore anxiety and that's the thing that i think i love about ayurveda it's like okay eat healthy but a lot of people in the name of eating healthy, they have bubble wrapped their diet, you know, take out everything, nuts, seeds, grains, legumes, nightshades, oxygen, you know, oxalates, goitrogens, you name it, take it out. Tomatoes, zucchini, really, you know, it's amazing to me. Um, and the science is now showing that when people do that, they have severely compromised immunity and result in nutritional deficiencies, which when you don't digest the proteins and fats well, the signs show they end up in your gut too big to get in your blood. They end up in the lymph around your belly, which is basically the first stage of inflammation. And, um, and uh, so, so, so I think that uh, that's something that I know that, that we do from the Ayurvedic perspective is really hone in on the underlying digestive weak link and strengthen that. Sure. Take the food out of your diet that makes you feel lousy, but don't stop there because in the long run, if you don't fix your underlying digestive, um, weak link, you will over time compromise your gut immunity, which is directly bidirectionally linked to respiratory immunity. And, um, and of course, um, compromise, compromise immunity on both counts. And, and, uh, what's really interesting, I'll just finish my little rant here about, about, about mm -hmm. that, but, but, um, Weak digestion, when those impurities get into your lymph, they can congest your lymph, particularly the glymphatic system in your brain, which dumps three pounds of plaque out of your head, which has now been linked to anxiety and depression, including cognitive decline, inflammation, infection, and even autoimmune disease, according to the studies. They don't, they don't, that hasn't hit medical practice yet, but it's definitely, you know, the mechanism for how these things happen. So, so yeah, I mean, the best way not to get a broken down digestion system is eat like you're eating to eat the way you're describing eat whole foods eat organic foods don't eat those pesticide rich foods that kill the bugs that help you make the enzymes to help you digest your food right so we have to really go back to as best we can without living in a bubble and you know becoming over you know overly like you said orthorexic orthorexic in your book where we start becoming insane about eating perfectly and that obsesses us right we can't do that but um any comments you can have about you know, the inflammation pathway and what we can do about that. Yeah. And I, I love this line of thinking that you just brought up because it also speaks to the fact that in this modern 
environment where we're out there, we're all trying, you know, everyone on Instagram, everyone in wellness, every orthorexic, everyone's just trying to feel good, to help others feel good. And sometimes it is misguided. And I think we're very focused on the what. Are you eating gluten? Are you eating dairy? Are you eating nightshades and goitrogens, as you pointed out? And not as much focus is on the how. And, yeah. you know, and, and ancient practices and ancestrally, there was much more focus on, well, you want to chew your food thoroughly. You want to eat in a calm state of mind. You want to even say a prayer, a blessing, um, which partly starts up the cephalic phase of digestion where you start to secrete enzymes into your oral cavity. So you're even starting digestion in your mouth. And all of that actually, you know, helps with our digestive fire, helps us have a smooth digestion, which is not a part of this that we're focused on at all. We, we would, a typical wellness practice would be, I'm eating the perfect, like sweet green salad but I'm sitting at my computer, scarfing it mindlessly, you know, barely chewing, inhaling this food. And, you know, maybe someone got the what right, at least according to their school of thought, but the how is all wrong. And so then we have compromised digestion, bloating, not to mention that that's a lot of insoluble fiber in a raw state, not processed by cooking or pureeing, not processed by chewing. And then it's just challenging and already compromised digestive system. So, and here we are with all kinds of problems. So your question I think was around inflammation. Am I remembering that correctly? Mm -hmm. I, I really think that this is one of the next frontiers in how we're understanding mental health. And we have all come of age with this monoamine hypothesis of depression. The one that says it's your serotonin, your depression, your anxiety is a genetic chemical imbalance, but don't worry, we have a pill that can correct that chemical imbalance. So everyone go forth. And this is not to out of hand dismiss antidepressants. We can have that conversation. There's nuance to that conversation, but I think it's always just been a story and a hypothesis and marketing in certain ways to say that mental health is a chemical imbalance. Um, if, and if there is some chemical imbalance, I believe that it's a downstream effect of other root causes of mental health issues. And one of those root causes and one very important competing hypothesis is the cytokine or inflammatory hypothesis of depression, which is more robustly supported by the evidence. And it's one that's basically showing us that when we have high levels of inflammatory molecules or cytokines circulating in our bloodstream, circulating through the brain, um, that will track with higher levels of depression. And we know that some of this can cross the blood-brain barrier. It can impact the threat detection centers in the brain, making the brain feel indeed under threat. So it's going to promote states like depression and anxiety. And it's actionable to address this. We are, all of us, struggling with chronic inflammation. It was something that really stuck out to me in med school because you kept hearing about aspirin. Here's this problem in cardiovascular health. Aspirin helps it. Here's this problem in rheumatology, this autoimmune issue, steroids help it. You know, this problem, this problem, this problem. I kept learning that suppressing inflammation seems to solve all these problems. And it's not so simple because these things like steroids and aspirin suppress inflammation, but can create rebound inflammation when you go off of it, can suppress the immune system in other important ways, can create gastrointestinal bleeding. It's not a long-term solution, but it really made me see across all of these different medical specialties at the root of so many of our issues is inflammation. And it has to do with the modern environment. We are consuming inflammatory foods. We have a compromised ecosystem of beneficial bacteria in our digestive tract. We're not getting the basic training for our immune system. We're consuming pesticides that create intestinal permeability, leaking very provocative substances like endotoxin into our bloodstream. And here we are, all of us in a chronic low-grade state of inflammation. And it's creating, I believe, chronic low-grade states of anxiety and depression. Yeah. And you would think, you know, that, um, you know, you think about just putting out the fire and putting out the inflammation with aspirin or the next greatest, latest thing. It just seems so obvious, right? That that's not the solution, you know? And I'm so grateful for someone like you to write a beautiful book like this, the 
the anatomy of anxiety. You got to look at the book, remember, remember it, get a copy of it. She did an absolutely brilliant job. You're really so eloquent the way you write, the way you speak. And I want to just thank you uh, for coming and sharing a little bit of the book with us um, today. Is there, can people um, get a hold of you, um, get more information? How, how do they do that? Yeah. And John, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, it means a lot that you found the book resonant. It's it's always an interesting thing to pour your heart and soul into art, put it out in the world and see how people get into relationship with it. Um, if people want to hear more of this approach to mental health, I'm fairly active on Instagram. I'm at Ellen Bora MD. And then really my book is the distillation of my whole philosophy on mental health. So that's a good place to learn more. Yeah. Well, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And really, good luck with your book. I'm sure it'll be a great success. Thank you so much. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.